Welcome to Barah Ministries, an intimate local Christian church with worldwide impact. My name is Pastor Rory Clark. Welcome to this Bible lesson. Who is Jesus Christ? At Barah Ministries, we know this truth, that Jesus Christ is God. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 7 say this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What was the attitude in Christ Jesus? Complete humility the willing to submit to the authority of God the Father. Philippians 2, 6, who although he is the exact same in essence as God the Father, undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever, but he is the exact same in essence in the deity with God the Father, and although he is the exact same in essence, did not regard his equality with God the Father as a thing to be seized and held on to. Philippians 2, 7, instead, the Lord emptied himself. It's kino'o is the Greek word. He emptied himself. Kino'o means deprived himself of the rightful functions of deity for a period of time. Taking on the essence of a bondservant, 100% true humanity. 100% deity taking on the form of 100% true humanity to make him the uniquely born one in the universe. And being made in the likeness of men. See, Jesus Christ was not a human being. He wasn't just a man. That's what everybody wants to say. He was God and man in one person. And that's the difference. And that's what makes him different, among other things. That's one of the things that makes him different from all the pretenders. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And the Son of Man. Those were two ways he described himself. He is the God Man. He is the sovereign God of the universe. Nothing happens in the universe without his permission. He is the Jewish Messiah. He is the one that the Jewish race was looking for. And he came and he fulfilled all 109 things that were predicted to be fulfilled. And they missed it. He is the Savior of the whole world. In the world, it's not. What you know, it's who you know. Well, it's the same in Christianity. And who believers know is Jesus Christ. The most important thing that you can do in this life is to know Jesus Christ, to make a decision to have a relationship with him. It costs you nothing, and it delivers things that would blow your mind. Well, why does Barah Ministries exist? At Barah Ministries, we make a difference by teaching the Word of God from God's perspective, and not from man's perspective. We are Christians, and we have a deep, intimate, and personal relationship with the Lord. Acts chapter 17, verse 11 tells us this, Now the Berean believers were more noble-minded than those believers in Thessalonica. For the Berean believers received the word of God with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things the Apostle Paul was teaching were true. 
that's the exact same thing that you need to do as a believer in Christ. You need to be inspecting what I teach you against the Bible to see if it is true. And that is not just an invitation. It's a responsibility. I am writing a letter right now called The Lie of Rebound, and I'm sick of it already. Those, uh, many of us who are part of this congregation were part of this thing called systematic theology, and there was a doctrine that said that once you become a believer in Christ, if you sin, you're out of fellowship with God. And then when you admit the sin, you're back in fellowship. So all day, about 250, 300 times a day, we're in fellowship and out of fellowship and in fellowship and out of fellowship. And our whole focus was our sins. Completely off base. The focus should be Christ. So I set up, I wrote down 10 things that you have to believe if you're going to believe that false doctrine. One of those things is you have to believe that Jesus Christ is conditional. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is conditional? No, he's not. So if you prove any one of those 10 things false, the whole thing's false. Because something that's true is true all the time. In one Bible verse, I proved the whole thing to be false. But you talk to people who believe that crap, and all they believe is the teacher that taught them. And they don't believe, they have never once studied the entire passage that is connected to that one verse that they think is the one verse that the Lord built biblical Christianity on. And one of the funny things is in 1 John chapter 1, there are three words that are the key to the whole passage. We, you, and they. We is a reference to true teachers, they is a reference to false teachers, and you is a reference to believers in Christ. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, we connects to who? True teachers. But if if you ask anybody who believes that doctrine, they will say, we connects to believers in Christ. They are wrong. You know why they're wrong? Because they never bother to study. They just believe some teacher who pulled a doctrine out of his butt. That's not what real believers in Christ do. You examine what your teachers are saying to see if it's so. That is a responsibility you have because you are the one that's going to be standing in front of the Lord Jesus Christ giving an account for the hope that is in you. Well, who is God's enemy? He's the one who perpetrates this. He's the one who encourages you not to study and to believe false teachers and to have your belief, and the wronger your belief is, to get more possessed about how true it is. It's Satan, whom God made the ruler of this world. John chapter 12, verse 31, the Lord says this, Now judgment is upon the world. Now the ruler of this world, Satan, will be cast out. At a future time, he'll be dethroned from his rulership of the world and thrown into the lake of fire. Satan is a creature. He is not a symbol of evil. He is not a concept. He is not a cartoon character with a red epidermis and a pitchfork. He is perfect, gorgeous, well-dressed, former officer angel, and a brilliant genius. Satan deceives the whole world, including you and me. He blinds the minds of unbelievers so they don't get to know God and so they don't see the power of the gospel message. I had a friend of mine tell me this week, I don't believe Jesus Christ can save me. 
I don't believe Jesus Christ can save you. Okay, well, first of all, you are screwed. But second of all, who do you believe can save you? Now, here's the funny thing about what she said. She realizes she has to be saved. But she doesn't think Jesus Christ can do it, so who can do it? The only person that could take her place, take Jesus Christ's place, is her. She would have to save herself. Oops. You can't. How about that? There's nothing you can do to contribute to being saved. Nothing. And if you speak Spanish, nada. Amen? So... He blinds the minds of unbelievers so they can't, don't get to know God. And he interferes with the believer's chance to become intimate with God through the study of the word by distracting us from the study of the word. And if it wasn't God, for God's protective power, we would be defenseless against Satan. The spiritual life is warfare, and your soul is the battleground. And believers in Christ are not fighting for the victory in this warfare. We are operating from victorious ground. And those of us who are in union with Christ have the victory over Satan through our Lord, who has overcome the world. James chapter 4, verse 7 says this, Submit to God by obeying him. Simultaneously, resist the devil by standing your victorious ground against him, and he will flee from you. The devil wants you to come off of your victorious ground. Imagine that you were standing on a piece of land, and no matter what you did, nothing could hurt you when you were standing on that piece of land. But as soon as you stepped off that piece of land, you could be hurt. Satan is always encouraging you to step outside of that piece of land. He's always uh, encouraging you to come out of your fortress. No. All you tell him is, look at the scoreboard, Satan. You see the four? That means four quarters are up. You see the zero, zero, zero? That means the game is over. You see the Christian score? One. You see your score? Nothing. You lost. That's it. You don't have to fight him. You just resist him. You resist him encouraging you to get off of your victorious ground. That's what James is telling you. Today's Bible lesson, God wants you to have a positive impact on others. God wants you to have a positive impact on others. And my question for you is, do you? Now, that's one of those things you can't self-assess. You'd actually have to ask somebody if you have a positive, if, if you have a positive impact on them. And then you'd have to listen to them when they tell you the truth. And if they said, no, you don't have any impact on me, or you have a negative impact on me, you'd just have to accept that. Well, I was at my 35th high school reunion in 2007, and I am not big on high school or college reunions, but I did want to see what had become of some of my high school friends, and I also wanted to see if I could gather any information about what people remembered about me from high school. A guy I knew, his name was Paul, came up to me and shook my hand rather vigorously as if we had been really good friends. We were only acquaintances. I thought he was a nice guy, knew who he was, but we didn't run in the same circles. He said, Rory Clark, man, I loved you in high school. I was a bit shocked. He said, you were my social barometer. I used to watch to see what kids you hung out with, 
And I hung out with the same kids because I knew if you were hanging out with them, they weren't assholes. Wow. So I was shocked. I guess I made a difference. I guess I had an impact on other people. Well, one of my favorite questions to ask my coaching clients is what difference does it make that you're on the planet? God certainly wants us to make a difference in our own lives, yet he also wants us to affect others, and we do. The Lord wants us to love him. He wants us to have hope in ourselves as a result of our relationship with him. And he wants us to reflect him and his love to others. But the question is this, do you make a difference to others? In today's lesson, Paul continues teaching the first century Corinthian believers about the importance of using their spiritual gifts to have a positive impact on others. You know, another way to ask this, by the way, is are you a good teammate? There are a lot of people who aren't good teammates. I've coached a lot of teams in my life. As a matter of fact, I've coached six championship teams. And one of the things I always hated about coaching teams is the selfishness of the players when they get there, when the team is forming. They're selfish, right? So they think it's okay to miss practice. They think it's okay to be late for practice. You're letting your teammates down when you do that. People who haven't been on teams are tough to have a relationship with because they don't understand the individual sacrifice. You know, they they come to the, the team talking about my minutes. And I always tell them the first day, if you say anything about your minutes, you're off the team that moment. If you say anything about your stats, you're off the team that moment. If you come late, you're off the team that moment. We are not going to let each other down like that. I'm not going to let you down, and you're not going to let me down. We're here for each other. That's how you win championships. So let's hear some music. Fear is not a part of the Christian way of living. Why? Well, what does the child of a king have to fear? Believers in Christ are children of a king. What does one who is in the palm of the Lord's righteous right hand at all times have to fear? What does a person who shares in the inheritance of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereign God of the universe, have to fear? Obviously, the answer is nothing. God wants us to rest and relax in his love. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 warns this, Therefore, let us believers in Christ fear if we fear anything. And by the way, fear is a sin, so we shouldn't fear anything. Let us believers in Christ fear, if we fear anything, that while a promise exists of resting in the Lord's care, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. Don't come short of the rest that you get from knowing that God is in charge. God has nothing against us. He wants us to relax. He wants us to be at peace. He wants us to enjoy the journey he provides for us in this life. Here's Josh Baldwin to encourage us. Lord, we stand in your love. When darkness tries to roll over my bones Sorrow comes to steal the joy I own. When brokenness 
and pain is all I know. I won't be shaken. No, I won't be shaken. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I circumventer yeah don't worry let us pray we're grateful Heavenly Father for the privilege of studying your absolute truth the Word of God father thank you for making our lives tough at times thank you for adversity and tribulation thank you for taking us to the spiritual gymnasium for a spiritual workout Thanks for preparing us in advance for all the challenges we face. Thank you for the distribution of spiritual gifts each of us can use to benefit each other. And thank you for our congregation, for providing people designed by you to build us up. 
Father, let your will be done in our lives. Open our spiritual eyes so that we can see your hand at work in all our circumstances. Show us how to reach others you place in our lives so that we can lead them to a relationship with your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, one person at a time. And show us how to lead believers in Christ to the study of your word. We ask this through the power of God the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, say it with me. Amen. Amen. Today's Bible lesson, God wants you to have a positive impact on others. God wants you to have a positive impact on others. Well, June, I don't want you to give us any music next week. Because the young people in the congregation think that the music is a break. They don't know that it's part of the worship service. So they all got up. They're walking around, talking, you know, getting food. That's all stuff you're supposed to do before we start. And then there's a break about midway. But the songs are not a break. That's just another form of worship. There's some good words in those songs. You need to hear that. Our fear doesn't stand a chance. You know? You feeling me, young people? You feeling me? Now, all the rest of the people, the adults, they're trying to get into the song, and they can't get into the song because there's 60 people walking around and burping and opening the refrigerator, drinking, slurping this stuff. Come on, y'all. Come on now. I'm going to give you a break. You can concentrate for 45 minutes. I know you can. You do it a video game. No, it's true. You don't want to deal with the truth. They sit there for five hours, but they can't do 30 minutes over here, all right? Anyway, we continue our study of 1 Corinthians with a verse-by-verse look at chapter 14, verses 1 to 19, a section that we introduced last week. You'll remember that Chloe's people have asked the Apostle Paul to address the problem of the self-proclaimed spiritual elite in the Corinthian church who are lording their spiritual gift of tongues over the others in the congregation acting as if their spiritual gift is more special than the spiritual gift of others. And one of the things this spiritual elitism term called to mind for for me this morning, you know who one of the most elitist groups of people is in our culture? Teenagers. Teenagers are elitists. They have no money. They have no sense, because aliens abduct their brain from the time when they're 13 to the time they're 21. And what they do during that period of time is they turn on their parents. And it's the strangest things. And they get really critical of their parents. And I have a younger son who was telling me what kind of father that I should be. Now, he didn't have any kids. He didn't have any kids. But he's telling me what kind of father I should be. Now, the one thing, you can criticize me about a lot of things, but the one thing you can't criticize me about is my fathering. (laughs) Thank you, son. Thank you. Because I was an amazing father, if for no other reason, because I was present with my kids. I actually was present to raise them. But this guy, he's telling me all the things that I did wrong as a father. And that dynamic between father and sons is stupid because sons forget what the father actually did. And all of a sudden, they know everything at 16, 17, 18 years old, 
and all of a sudden they start looking at the, the dad and rejecting everything he did. But if your dad was present, my dad left my mom 30 days after they got married. He wasn't present. If your dad is present, you ain't got one thing to say. I changed 5,000 crap diapers for my kids. My younger son, I rescued him from choking to death. He was sucking on one of those cookies and broke it off and it caught over his windpipe. And I looked at his mom and she panicked. And I didn't. And he's alive today because I didn't panic. And now he's going to tell me what kind of father I should be? Spiritual elitism. You know, there are a lot of forms of elitism. And teenagers are elitists. They think they're better than their parents. You aren't. And there's a word, honor, that connects to what teenagers ought to do with their parents. Honor their parents. It doesn't matter what kind of parent you have. It doesn't matter what your opinion of your parent is, because God picked the perfect parent for you to teach you something. Are you learning? That's what elitism is all about. I'm better than you. No, you aren't. No, you aren't. So, much of Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians has been directed to individuals in the church. And it's certainly important for us as believers in Christ to think about how we're running our lives. So, when we hear a Bible lesson, our first thought might easily be, how does this apply to me and to my life? Well, Paul thinks it's equally important for us to think about the effect our conduct has on others. When you're on a team and you show up late, what's the effect that it has on the coach? When you're on a team and you show up late, what's the effect that it has on the other players? When you get hurt and then you come out of the game and take your helmet off and you quit for the rest of the game, what's the effect that it has on the, other, on the team? You know, it was one time when, when Zachary was playing football, and he's on the one-yard line. He was a halfback. He's on the one-yard line. He gets the handoff, and he gets absolutely cracked. Bam! And, you know, there wasn't a person who was watching the game who didn't know that he was hurt. It was hurt. So he comes over. He bent his arm, and he's, he's real dramatic when he gets hurt, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I get hurt. I just, all right, whatever. You know, he's dramatic. <laughs> he comes off, and I'm watching him. I'm watching him. And what I'm watching for is if he's going to take his helmet off. Because when a player's done, they take their helmet off. He takes his helmet off. And I flipped in my mind. And he walks over and he gets some Gatorade, and he's, you know, hobbling. I said, hey, I was that parent. I was that parent. Hey, everybody looks around. I said, is it broken? I said, get back in the game. You know, all the moms. <laughs> what, a, what a mean guy. <laughs> you meanie. No. No, that's a man in training. That's a man in training. What's he going to do when, when he gets fired from a job? And he's got three kids. What's he going to do? Limp over to the Gatorade bucket and say he's hurt? You better get out and get you a job. Raise your kids. And it all starts when you're a teenager. What? You were. 
Yeah. No, he was the leading scorer. He went back in the game and scored after that. Taking your helmet off. That flashback made me mad. I don't want to teach anymore. I'm still mad about that. <laughs> Whatever. You're lucky I didn't put everything in there that I wanted to put in there. There was a lot of language. <laughs> so anyway, Paul thinks it's important how we affect other people. Not to, he, he doesn't want us just looking at our own life. And so, what difference does it make that you're on the planet? And who does it make a difference to? More specifically, Paul wonders what difference using your spiritual gift makes to the congregation of which you are a part. And there are a lot of people who have forfeited the use of their spiritual gift. They don't know what it is. They don't want to know what it is. The only way to find out about it is doing stuff. But they don't think they owe anything to anybody in the congregation because the only thing we owe anything to anymore is our phone, right? Not people. Relationships? What's that? And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about relationships within the congregation. And this part of Paul's message addresses the use of the spiritual gift of tongues in public worship service. And if you've ever been to a Pentecostal church, or if you've ever heard about what goes on there, you know that on any given Sunday, you're going to see someone who is considered very spiritual by the others go on an ecstatic display of what they call the spiritual gift of tongues. Right? And Xavier kind of goes like this. Do you know what I just said? No, neither does anybody else. They don't know what I said, but that's what happens in Pentecostal churches all over the world right today. That somebody will stand up and do that. And they're not saying jack. But everybody, oh, they're so spiritual, wow. And you come in, you're a guest, this is your first time at Barah Ministries, you hear that and you say, Darian, I am never going back there. I don't care how good. The quiche was. I'm not going back there. Amen? Because what comes from up here has to be understandable. So that's what Paul is addressing. Is the public worship service understandable to people? And what he's really worried about is if it's understandable to unbelievers. So at the time of Paul's writing this letter, The completed canon of Scripture did not exist. This is the completed canon of Scripture. It is the Bible. 66 books, 27 of which you're responsible for as a church-age believer. This did not exist. So what existed was there were letters like 1 Corinthians being shuttled all over Asia and throughout the world, throughout the inhabited world, to a bunch of congregations, and they were read there. And in those congregations, there were speaking spiritual gifts in play, like the spiritual gift of tongues and the spiritual gift of prophecy. Both of those gifts are no longer in play. If you go to a Mormon church, the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints, they will tell you that they have prophets. They don't. That gift is no longer in play. 
they will tell you that God is, is revealing stuff to them, to the leaders of that church. He is not talking to them. They need prescription medication if they think that God is talking to them. He is not talking to them. This is what talks to them. They're not opening this. They're opening the Book of Mormon. Of course, I'm bagging on them if I tell the truth, aren't I? They open the, 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 the pearls of great price. They open the doctrines and covenants. But they don't open the Bible. Now, you ought to know that if you've got four books running your discipline, that your focus is split. That's one of the ways Satan gets to us, the Roman Catholic Church. There's the Bible, which we never open, and there is the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which we're, we live in. And the two of them are saying different things, which is why we never open the Bible. Because if we open the Bible, we would find out that the Catechism is saying Jesus Christ did not finish the work of salvation at the cross, and if we open the Bible, it says he did. Tetelestai, finished. Salvation is finished in the past, and the result is it's finished forever. So, anyway, get the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy was in play at this time because the canon of Scripture was not completed. And these letters would be circulated to be read. And the people who had these gifts of prophecy and tongues in a congregation would use them for the benefit of others in the congregation so that others in the congregation could get a message from God. But some of the people who had the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy thought they were better than the people who had other gifts. The pastor is not better than the guy who is cleaning the, the church. There's no partiality with God. But there's a lot of partiality with people. We think we're better than other people for whatever reason we make ourselves better. Well, in this part of the entire passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14, that's the entire passage we're studying, Paul is addressing uninterpreted tongues in a public forum. And Paul thinks that spiritual gifts are not to be lorded over others as special. Instead, they should be used with unconditional love for the benefit of those uh, the spiritual gifts are intended to serve. So you'll notice... Three messages in this section of the passage, verses 1 to 19, chapter 14. Chapter, verses 1 to 5, the Apostle Paul teaches the Corinthian believers about the importance of using the spiritual gifts to edify others, to build people up. In verses 6 to 12, the Apostle teaches the Corinthian believers that the importance of the spiritual gifts when used being understandable to those who are being edified by the gifts. So if I'm that, 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 and you don't understand what I'm saying, it's not useful to you. And then Paul concludes this section, verses 13 to 19, when he teaches the Corinthian believers about some of the important aspects of public worship. So let's begin the first message. In essence, Paul asks, is your spiritual gift building up others? Because if it's not, it's tearing them down. Is your spiritual gift being used to edify the whole group? Or is your spiritual gift being used for elitism, making others feel inferior, causing divisions and rivalries? 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1 says this. Keep on pursuing unconditional love. That's the chapter we just came out of. Chapter 13, the chapter on love. What love is and what love isn't. And if earnestly 
you are zealous for spiritual gifts. Third class condition if, maybe you are and maybe you aren't, you have a choice. But you should be zealous for all spiritual gifts, not just the glamorous ones. Especially be zealous for the best gift, the gift of prophecy. Well, that was a record scratch because the elitists thought that tongues was the best gift and Paul is saying, no, it's not tongues, it's prophecy. Paul starts by shaking up people who are flaunting their gift of tongues. And we often have new people come to Barah Ministries. What if I started going into a display of tongues? What would they think? What would they get out of it? I think we know the answer. It would turn them off to church. It would turn them off to God. And it would confirm why they should stay home on Sunday to eat cinnamon rolls, listen to Kenny Rankin music, and read the Arizona Republic. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 14, 2. For one who speaks in a tongue doesn't speak to men, he speaks directly to God. For no one on the outside understands what he is speaking when he's speaking directly to God. But in his spirit on the inside, he's speaking mysteries. Why? Because he's communing with God. When the gift of tongues was an active spiritual gift, and by the way, it no longer is, just for those of you who think it is, The person with the spiritual gift used the gift for direct communication with God, and it was for two purposes, prayer and praise. The spiritual gift of tongues required another person in the congregation who had the spiritual gift of interpretation of tongues to make God's message clear to the congregation. Paul's contrast, Paul contrasts the spiritual gift of tongues with the spiritual gift of prophecy, 1 Corinthians 14.3. The one who prophesies speaks not to God, but directly to men for their edification, exhortation, and consolation. He's saying, it's okay to talk directly to God, but it's much better if God talks directly to you and you share it with other people to edify them, to exhort them, and to console them. Because messages from God serve a series of purposes. Some messages are for edification. What is edification? It's building others up. Some messages are for consolation. When do you console people? You help others who are grieving or suffering. Some messages are for exhortation. We have several members within Barah Ministries who are great at exhortation. And they give messages that to those who need a push to get unstuck from stinking thinking. Some messages are for assurance, especially helpful messages when we're doubtful or confused. Some messages are for strengthening when we feel powerless or weak. We need each other. And while the gift of tongues was important at the time, Paul contends the gift of prophecy was even more valuable. Why? 1 Corinthians 14.4 One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. One who prophesies edifies the whole church. What's better, edifying self or others? I didn't hear you. I just want to make sure you're awake. Paul contends that edifying others is better. Someone with the gift of prophecy, rather than turning people off to church and to God, may send the exact message that helps an unbeliever repent so that they change their minds about having a relationship with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Every lesson in Barah Ministries, at the end, we tell people how to get to heaven. Why? We want them to clearly understand what it takes and how easy it is for them. 
This was a huge concern of the Apostle Paul. His huge concern was how spiritual gifts affect others. And my question for you is this, is that a concern of yours? Is it a concern of yours how your spiritual gift affects others? Is it a concern of yours when you forfeit the use of your spiritual gift? You don't even show up for the game. I used to play softball, and it used to drive me crazy. I'd get all jacked up for the game on Saturday, and then the other team doesn't show up. Forfeit. Hated that. A lot of Christians have forfeited their spiritual life because they don't investigate their spiritual gift. 1 Corinthians 14.5, Now I, Paul, wish that all of you spoke in tongues, but even more I wish that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless the one who speaks in tongues also interprets the tongues, so that the church may receive edification. So Paul's message was simple in the first five verses. Our spiritual gifts should be used to build others up rather than tearing others down. Your tongue should be used the same way. Your tongue should be used to build people up and not to tear people down. And we must be sensitive to our effect on others. Well, hey, young people, we're going to go on a break. Here's the break. When we get back from break, we'll take the offering, and then we'll see what Paul has to say about the other critical aspects of public worship. Take a five-minute break. Why you ever chose me has always been a mystery. All my life I've been told I belong at the end of the line. Will all the other not quite? Will all the never get it right? But it turns out they're the ones you were looking for all this time. Cause I'm just a nobody trying to tell everybody. All about somebody who saved my soul Ever since you rescued me You gave my heart a song to sing I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus When Moses had stage fright And David brought a rock to a sword fight you picked 12 outsiders nobody would have chosen And you changed the world Well, the moral of the story is Everybody's got a purpose So when I hear that devil start talking to me Saying, who do you think you are? I say, I'm, I'm just a nobody Trying to tell everybody All about somebody Who saved my soul For the world to see Nobody but Jesus I'm living for the world to see Nobody but Jesus So let me go down, down, down In history As another blood-bought Faithful member of the family And if they all forget my name For the world to see Nobody but Jesus 
Welcome back. Today's Bible lesson, God wants you to have a positive impact on others. God wants you to have a positive impact on others. Again, I ask, what difference does it make that you're on the planet? To God, you make a lot of difference because he puts you on the earth to make a difference in the lives of everyone you meet, one person at a time. By giving, you make a difference. You impact the lives of people you will never meet. Your giving allows us to reach thousands of people around the world through the miracle of the Internet. People we don't hear from who are nonetheless grateful. Thank you so much for making Barah Ministries possible and for your continued support of this ministry and everyone it touches. Let's welcome up Deacon Denny Goodall with one of his always inspiring offering messages. Good morning. <laughs> My name is Denny Goodall, and I'm blessed to be a deacon for Barah Ministries. Barah Ministries is a worldwide Christian church. This is a place for real people to listen to a real pastor teach the real truth from the Word of God, not all these other books. 
But I just thinking lately, you know, I see my kids every day. They wake up, they're so happy, and they're so simple. Like, it doesn't matter what happened yesterday. It doesn't matter what's going on today. They're just like, what's today? I got to go to school. Okay, I got to go to school. They're happy. And I feel like the older you get, the more complicated life gets, and the less happy you are when you wake up. Like, all the things you got to do, all the chores you got to do. Seriously, you know, you go to college, and then after college, you get a car, and you got to have insurance, and then you got to get life insurance, and then you get a house, and just everything gets complicated. Oh, my taxes, I got to pay my taxes, and stuff just gets complicated, and that's life, right? That's what Satan wants. He wants complication, the opposite of God. God wants simple, right? Think about tongues. Does that sound simple? That sounds complicated to me. Like, some people understand it, and, and if they understand it, then they're probably the real crazy ones, right? <laughs> But it's, you think about religion, like he's talking about how many books do, do the Mormons have? Four books? Catholics have two other books? Maybe three books? How are you supposed to learn all that? That's just complicated. Completely complicated. And like, look at Facebook. It's a real world example. You know, it draws you in. There's stuff, to, there's so much stuff to get lost in there. You, you know, you can talk to friends. You can, you can, there's like farming you can do on there. There's like, I mean, just, you just get lost in there. It's not, it's just complicated. It's not something, they, they want you to get stuck there, you know? Well, what does God want from you? Something simple. First Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep on loving each other deeply and unconditionally because unconditional love covers a multitude of sins as we overlook the faults of others. So that sounds simple, right? It's not always simple to do, but it's very simple in action when you, when you finally do it because you just forgive, forgive each other. You forgive yourself. You forgive others. You forgive God. A lot of people don't forgive God for things that have happened in their life and they give up. A lot of people don't forgive others, and they give up on their family. They give up, give up on friends, you know? And <clears throat> what better way to love others through your spiritual gift? Start using your spiritual gift here at the church. We're ready for everybody to do it. And that's the best way to show your love, a little sacrifice. And so we always appreciate your sacrifice, the offering. It's your chance to give. It's your chance to worship, to give of your time, your talent, and your treasure. <clears throat> so thank you, Pastor, and thank you, everybody, for giving. Amen.
Thank you, Deacon Denny. Welcome back. Today's Bible lesson, God wants you to have a positive impact on others. God wants you to have a positive impact on others. Well, those who criticize Pentecostalism say that it embraces emotionalism and rejects logic. And if that's true, it easily turns off those people who have emotions but are not comfortable displaying them, and especially in a public forum. That's one of the things I notice about people when they come to church. They're just so uptight. 9.9 on the sphincter scale. I mean, they are so uptight and so worried, you know. It's it's not the same thing that you feel when you go into a a new McDonald's that you've never been in, right? (laughs) But you go into church and it's, oh, you know, what's going to happen to me? Nothing's going to happen to you. So I don't get it. I don't. So one of the things that I love about Barah Ministries is that we have people who are comfortable with a public display of emotion. Uh, Many of us come from a discipline called systematic theology that completely rejected emotion in any form in a worship service and overemphasized logic as the bedrock of Christianity. The truth Great biblical messages have both logic and emotion as part of them. And more importantly, great biblical messages are easy to understand. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning at verse 6, Paul introduces a bit of logic as he looks at the importance of the source of our spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 14, 6. Now, brethren, brothers and sisters, believers in Christ, if I, Paul, Come to you speaking in tongues. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. I have a choice. What will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or by way of knowledge or by way of prophecy or by way of teaching? In other words, from a valid source. What's the valid source? The Lord. Ecstatic and emotional babbling in tongues that are not understandable to everyone does not edify, encourage, or console. At the time, the revelation of the gospel message came directly from God to the person with the spiritual gift of prophecy. Spiritual knowledge for teaching came directly from God to the person with the spiritual gift of prophecy. God powers the spiritual gifts. I don't believe you had me. Some will repeat that. God powers the spiritual gifts. Therefore, when we use spiritual gifts, God expects us to use them with unconditional love as the foundation to build others up. For messages to build others up, they have to be understandable. Babbling is not understandable. So Paul provides an analogy. 1 Corinthians 14, 7, Even lifeless things like flutes or harps, In producing a sound, these are musical instruments, in producing a sound, if they don't produce a distinction in the tones, that is, clear, intelligible music, how will it be known what's played on the flute or the harp? Got a great example of this. You parents know what I'm talking about. Have you ever gone to a concert when your kids were learning to play an instrument in grammar (laughs) school? Now, I couldn't think of this song, what this song is for the life of me, but it goes like this. Does anybody know what that song is? I was thinking it was the William Tell Overture, but I don't think it is. But anyway, 
you know, one of my kids, I don't know if it was you, do you? Yeah, well, I want to know the name of it because it's irritating me to death. But, but I don't know whether it was you or Elliot, but I had to go to a concert where you guys were playing that. And it was sort of like this. And like two minutes into that, I wanted to kill myself. I did. Like so many events, the kids are so excited that you come to their events, and you're sitting there the whole time thinking, would somebody please kill me? I want to get home. And the kids are all excited when you take them to McDonald's afterward. And you're taking them to McDonald's because you want anything but to be where you were, listening to them bastardize this amazing song. It's horrible. Well, that's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 14.7. If, if an instrument doesn't play a song you recognize, then it's not doing a very good job. 1 Corinthians 14.8. Or if the bugle calling soldiers to war produces an indistinct, unrecognizable sound, prepare himself for battle. And the answer is no one, of course. And this calls to mind Reveille, a military bugle call used to wake military personnel at sunrise. You remember that? Imagine if the bugler's music was not recognizable. We sure wouldn't want our soldiers sleeping in, would we? But they would. 1 Corinthians 14.9 So, you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known by the hearers what is being spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. And that is a, a Greek idiom for you'll be incoherent. 1 Corinthians 4. 14.10, there are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind of language is without meaning. 1 Corinthians 14.11, if then I don't know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. To the Greeks, a person who didn't speak Greek was speaking a language that was unintelligible to them. And a person who spoke this different language was a barbarian, according to the Greeks. It sounded like people with a foreign language tongue were saying, bar, 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 bar. So they called them the barbaros. They called them barbarians. So this reminded me of something. The first time I went to China, naturally, the people who are Chinese, for whom China is their first language, would prefer at dinner to speak Chinese. Now, they speak English, but they, when they're speaking to each other, they would speak Chinese. And most people who are English speakers only consider that to be rude. I do not. I think that if you have a chance to speak your native tongue, you should speak your native tongue, and if you want to fill me in on what you're talking about, and you speak English, you can fill me in, and if you don't, I'm just going to be sucking all the chicken out of that neck bone. Amen? I'm just going to eat my dinner. But as I'm listening to them, now this is my first trip to China, I keep hearing this word, and it, the word is it's frequently used, like in Spanish, when you listen to Spanish speakers, 
they say pero, 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 which means but. And they say it over and over and over again. So, you you know, when you're listening to them, you're like, why do you keep saying pero, pero, pero? Because when you're learning Spanish, the, you know, what is it, uh, Rosetta Stone doesn't use pero, pero, pero over and over again. They use, you know, regular Spanish. But pero, pero, pero is part of slang. Well, the Chinese have these expressions that they use over and over again. And one of them is a word where they're saying that thing. So that thing should be moved. And the word is niga. So I'd hear him saying, na 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 niga, na 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 niga. And I knocked out about five of them before one of them told me it means that thing. <laughs> so all my Chinese friends and I have this joke that when I'm listening to them talk and they're using it, and then they'll stop and say, niga, niga, niga. All right, watch it, you're going to get knocked out. It's always good for, to get them to buy me dinner. But here's the, the point is that each of the languages has this stuff they're saying, but if I don't understand it, there's a misunderstanding. Right? Well, that's what goes on with tongues. It's that, 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 that expat, ecstatic experience, running down the aisles, waving your hands over your head, makes a bunch of people uncomfortable, but they don't understand what you're saying. And if there's not an interpreter there to make clear what you're saying back when tongues was valid, then it's horrible, and that's what Paul is critiquing here. Paul summarizes, if the hearers can't understand a message, the message has no value. First five verses, messages ought to edify. Second message, if people can't understand the message, it has no value. So tongues that are not understandable have no value, but prophecy, on the other hand, Paul contends, is very valuable. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. So, since you Corinthian believers are zealous for special spiritual gifts, you, since you want to be elite, seek to abound for the gifts that provide edification to the church. And guess what? Tongues isn't that gift. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is indirect. Paul slams people in the most subtle way possible. And it's just really fun to watch how he uses subtlety and indirectness to slam people's fingers in the door. And that's what he's doing here. He is teaching, but he's also rebuking. Paul concludes the message of the section, 1 Corinthians 14, 13. Therefore, let the one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may also interpret. Don't just speak in tongues. Tell us what we ought to be hearing. 1 Corinthians 14, 14. For if I pray in a tongue... My spirit in the inner man prays. Who's it praying to? When you're using a tongue, who are you praying to? God. God. You're praying for yourself to God. That's an interaction between you and God. But my mind is unfruitful. Why? Because I'm not edifying the church with it. 1 Corinthians 14, 15. So what's the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit. And I will sing with the mind also, 1 Corinthians 14, 16. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say amen at your giving of thanks? 
since he doesn't know what you're saying. If you're praying directly to God with no interpretation, how can the congregation say amen when they don't really know what you're talking about? Amen? amen. See? It works. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 14, 17. For you are giving thanks well enough directly to God, but the other person isn't edified. His point? Prophecy is better than tongues. And yet you're flaunting tongues when nobody understands what you're saying. 1 Corinthians 14, 18. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. Here's him being self-effacing, but slamming them. 1 Corinthians 14, 19. However, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind that were clear and distinct so that I could instruct others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Amen? In other words, make sense, be clear, get to the point. Some people are impressed, though, with emotional babbling. Some people are impressed with intelligent confusion and intellectual confusion and complication. Right, Larry? The ten problem-solving devices, rebound, reversionism, blackout of the soul, you know, I'm, getting, I'm shivering, I'm getting shakes from all that complicated language. When we were in this thing called systematic theology, we, we thought we had the corner on Christianity and everybody else was stupid. And what was the truth? We were the stupid ones and everybody else knew what was coming on. Why? Because it's all about intellect. And here's the subtlety of that deception. The doctrine. I studied the doctrine. The doctrine. The Bible doctrine. What's the center of Christianity, people? Jesus Christ. Not the doctrine. And you better have given the right answer or we were going to go for another five hours. (laughs) It wasn't going to be no party. Party would be canceled. So... Back when I was teaching uh, during my systematic theology days, people would come up and they would subtly put me down after I had taught a lesson. And they would say, you know, your messages are so simple. I really like the spin you put on things. Yeah, because there's no spin. Because God's messages are clear. They're not confusing. So what they were really saying, first of all, they weren't my messages, they were God's messages, but what they were really saying is that they prefer these complicated messages that they don't understand so they could walk around acting like they were intellectuals. But most of them, you question them two layers deep about any of the doctrines that we were learning, and they didn't know a damn thing about what we were teaching them. One of the things I've always known as a teacher is when students don't understand What you're saying, you're not a very good teacher. Yet there are a lot of students who don't feel that way. They feel more intellectual if they can babble things that others don't understand. And most of the time, they don't even understand what they're saying. So what difference does it make that you're on the planet? Do you make a difference in the lives of others? If you're using your spiritual gift and your life for edification, you make a lot of difference. If you're using your spiritual gift to call attention to yourself, then you probably don't make much difference at all. Other or self, what's your choice? Remember this. 
God the Holy Spirit is not an energy force, as a lot of the religions distort him to be. He is a person, and he is deity, every bit as powerful, with the exact same essence as God the Father and God the Son. Attributing an ecstatic, babbling experience to him is blasphemy. I repeat, attributing an ecstatic, babbling experience to him is blasphemy. God the Holy Spirit inspired those with the gift of prophecy to communicate a message in a public forum. God the Holy Spirit inspired those with the gift of tongues to pray and to praise God in the spirit of their minds for the amazing spiritual message. And God the Holy Spirit provided interpreters to translate the message of those who had the gift of tongues. God is the source of our spiritual gift. God is the power behind our spiritual gifts, and he wants us to use them in unconditional love for the benefit of each other. So don't forget how important it is what you do for others. This is not a selfish life. What do you do for others? Well, the closing moments of our lesson today are a reminder or an introduction to all of you. And what I want you to know is that God wants you. Xavier, this is for you, man. God wants you. And what he wants from you is you make the most important decision of your life. The Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the creator of the heavens, the earth, and you, loves you unconditionally, and he wants the best for you. So here's the question that demands reflection. Are you a sinner or are you a saint? Now, if you ask most Christians that question, they will say that they're a sinner because they sin. But Christians are not sinners, they are saints. Unbelievers are sinners because they're not saints. So according to the Bible, all of us come to earth sinners. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, All creatures have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, It is written, There is none righteous. There is no creature who is righteous, not even one. Unfortunately, being a sinner has a penalty. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says this, The payment earned for being a sinner is both spiritual death and physical death. One day you will die physically, and if you are dead spiritually, the day you die physically, that's curtains for you. Being a sinner is bad news, especially if you die a sinner. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15 says this, If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life at the great white throne judgment of unbelievers, and that will be true for all who are there, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Not good. You remain a sinner if you die before you accept a relationship with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, the Bible is a guide for sinners, and it contains the good news. If you're a sinner which is an unbeliever, and you're still breathing, you can choose to become a saint. You can choose to become a believer in Christ. The sovereign God of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his Father has special plans for sinners. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this, God the Father demonstrates his own unconditional love toward all mankind. Demonstrates. in that while we were sinners, while we were unrighteous, ungodly unbelievers, Christ died a sacrificial death for us. John chapter 3, verse 16 says this, For God the Father loved the world unconditionally 
And he loved the world so much that he gave his uniquely born son, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, 100% God and 100% man and one person forever, to be crucified on a cross and to shed his blood so that whosoever believes in him shall never perish, but instead shall have the resurrection life. The Lord Jesus Christ has his arms wide open right this minute, waiting to welcome sinners into his kingdom. John chapter 6, verse 37 says this, And the ones who come to believe in me, I, the Lord Jesus Christ, will certainly not cast out into the outer darkness the lake of fire. You don't get cast in the lake of fire for your sins. You get cast in the lake of fire for rejecting a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, God doesn't even require you to look for him because in his plan, he comes and looks for you. Amen? Amen. Luke chapter 15, verses 4 to 7 say this, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, doesn't leave the ninety-nine sheep in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Now, let me tell you about shepherds. They would never consider leaving the ninety-nine in the pasture. That's how serious they are, are about the sheep. So that's how serious it is that the Lord is saying he would leave the sheep in the pasture to come and get you. Luke 15, 5. And when he has found that lost sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Luke 15, 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. And Jesus brings it on home in Luke 15, 7. I, the Lord Jesus Christ, tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, over one sinner who changes his mind about having a relationship with Jesus Christ, than over the 99 righteous persons, saints, believers in Christ, who need no repentance. Well, there are a few things you need to know if you want to be transformed from sinner to saint. First, you can't work to be saved. God does the work for you. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says this, The Lord Jesus Christ saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in self-righteousness, not on the basis of any work of yours, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and through the renewing by God the Holy Spirit. Second, to be a saint instead of a sinner, you need to have a change of mind. And the Bible calls this repentance. And it has nothing to do with your sins, as many legalists claim. Repent means to change your mind about your desire to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Moving from having no desire to have a relationship with him to having an immediate desire to have a relationship with him. It happens in a second. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31 say this. Therefore, having overlooked the times of your ignorance, God the Father is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, should change their mind about having a relationship with Christ, because God the Father has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through the God-man, Jesus Christ, whom the Father has appointed for judging, having furnished proof that Jesus is God to all men, by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what makes Jesus Christ different from Joseph Smith. That's what makes Jesus Christ different from the Pope. That's what makes Jesus Christ different from Buddha. 
That's what makes Jesus Christ different from Allah. That's what makes Jesus Christ different from Mohammed. That's what makes Jesus Christ different from Jehovah. What is it? He was resurrected from the dead. What else? He died for your sins. He died for you. None of those guys died for you. Finally, you need to acknowledge the truths in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, which say this, I, Paul, delivered to you as of first importance the gospel message I also received, that it was Jesus Christ who died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scripture. So how can you move from sinner to saint? John chapter 1, verse 12. Whoever received him by requesting a relationship with him, to them the Lord Jesus Christ gave the right to become children of God the Father, even to those who believe in Jesus Christ's name. Acts 16, 31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and everyone in your household who also believes. At a single moment in time, you just have a conversation with God the Father, even in thought only, and you say, Father, I believe in Christ, and that's the moment of eternal life for you. Or you can say what the thief said on the cross. Jesus, remember me when you, came into, when you come into your kingdom. Or you can say what the father of the epileptic boy said. I believe. Help my unbelief. There are a lot of ways to request salvation. But heed the warning in John chapter 3, verse 36, which says this. He who believes in the Son has eternal life right at that moment. But he who does not obey the command to believe in the Son will not see the resurrection life. Instead, the wrath of God, the lake of fire, abides on him. The good news is this. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. So take a moment out of your busy life and heed the suggestion in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. It says this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, that he is God, and if you believe in your heart that God the Father raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in the imputation of absolute righteousness by God, which is your admission ticket to heaven, and with the mouth a person confesses publicly, admitting faith in Christ alone, resulting in salvation. And as a reminder... Once you have salvation, you cannot lose it. An immutable God who never changes his mind saves you once and for all time. Amen? Amen. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says this, Therefore the Lord Jesus Christ is able also to save forever through the divine power omnipotence, those who draw near to God the Father through believing in Christ, since the Lord Jesus Christ always lives to make intercession for those who draw near. The Lord Jesus Christ is praying for you, praying for your salvation, and protecting you from ever losing it. John chapter 10, verse 28 says this, I, the Lord Jesus Christ, give eternal life to believers in Christ, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Believe now. There's no time to waste. All right, well, let's close with music. As church-age believers, we enjoy blessings that stagger the imagination. The apostle Peter wanted us to think about and to experience the magnitude of what God has done for us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He lets us know 
that like Jewish believers, you church-age Gentile believers are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of God the Father, who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Whenever you're feeling a bit down on yourself, it would be a good idea to ask June Murphy to sing this song to you. We are royalty. The moment we believed in Christ, we're royal priests by name, a brand new spiritual species, the spirit sealing remains, our God sanctifies us, yes we are set apart, because of God's awesome plan. Royalty thou art, we're God's royalty, called to live in dignity, in transparency, for Christ, we're co-heirs with him, blessed with spiritual blessings, he calls us his friend, no one can separate us from our union with Christ, the cross elevates us to a royal spiritual life. We're God's royalty, called to live in dignity, in transparency for all the world to see. We are God's royalty. One day.
I listen to Sister Sledge and the rest of them. They can't get up there anymore. <laughs> They're done with that. They're, it's just funny to hear these these people who have been singing forever and they can't get those notes they used to get. It's like, you can't get there anymore. <laughs> no, she can't. Come on. I can't get there. I try. I, I make myself sick singing Alexa songs. All right, the closing verses are a doxology of praise to our God. A doxology is a, a praise Him to God. Romans chapter 15. Verse 5 says, Now may the God who gives endurance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another, to think exactly the same way, operating in harmony, according to your union with Christ Jesus. Romans 15, 6. So that with one accord, you believers in Christ may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 15, 7. Therefore, keep on accepting one another and keep on receiving one another just as Christ also keeps on accepting us all in unconditional love to the glory of God the Father. Let us pray. Almighty God and Father, we just thank you for the gift of the Word of God, which keeps us from being conformed to this world and helps us keep on being transformed by you through the renewing of our mind. Let the things that you have planted in us in today's lesson Go forward with us into the week so that we can spread these things to the people we come in contact with. Help us to use the newsletter that you've gifted us with to get to people. Help us to understand the depth of the spiritual need in this world. Help us to understand that if people are to be propagandized, they should be propagandized with the Word of God and not with false media sources who are lying to us. Help us to make a difference in this world by making a difference to everyone in our lives. We ask this through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, in Christ's name. Say it with me. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming, thanks for watching, and thanks for listening.